The nature of the church, that's the topic for the next couple of sermons that I'm going to bring uh, here at Riverside this week and in two weeks time. So we're going to be in Acts this morning and then hopefully uh, in one of the letters of Paul next time. But the church is the focus. How does the church function as a church? And the nature of the church, of the Lord Jesus Christ, is a complicated one. It's a complicated one because, on the one hand, the church is the blood-bought, spotless bride of Christ. And yet, on the other hand, it's a compilation of imperfect sinners. It's a compilation of people who are being transformed from one glory to another glory, which means that they're not there yet. It's not a complete work yet. It's not a finished and done thing yet. On one hand, the church is characterised by an inexpressible joy, and yet, on the other hand, it's battling with residual sin all the time. It's battling with the things which are bringing it low, its own failings. And that means the expectation of every believer in the life of the local body is going to be one in which there's a mixture of progressive sanctification resulting in fruit, fruit for the kingdom of God. And yet, we know that that's going to be tempered by the knowledge that often, within, from within its own walls, the church will be tormented by setbacks. And we're just going to have to accept that that's the case. That is going to be the nature of the church between now and when the Lord Jesus returns and consummates everything. In Ephesians chapter 4, which hopefully you've got open in front of you, Paul exhorts the church in Ephesus with this word in verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And if you notice, that's an instruction which comes at the end of a list of things which these believers are to do, to live... And they're meant to live them so as to uphold the worth of the calling that they have received. In verse 1. The calling which they have received is a worthy calling. But it's, you only live up to that worthiness if you do what Paul is saying to do in verse 3. And one of the things he's saying to do is make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, God, the maker of heaven and earth, who lives in that unapproachable light, before whom angels veil their faces, and before whom the angels sing, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, all the earth is full of his glory, very similar to what we sang this morning. He, that God, stooped down from on high and concerned himself with me. He called me to himself. He called me out of darkness and into his marvellous light. Out of all the nations of the earth, he called you. He called you. He came to you. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a wonderful thing? That he would call you. Why would he concern himself with you? When so many others he does not concern himself with. 
He's concerned himself with you that you might become part of the expression of his own majesty and his own glory and his own magnificence. It's an unbelievable calling if you've been called by the living God. And Paul is saying there's a way of life that concords with that call. That is a magnificent call. That is a call like no other call. And there's a way of life that concords with that call. It celebrates that call. And there is a way of life that diminishes and undermines the glory of that calling. In other words, if we don't do those things which are set down in verse 3, we can diminish, we can undermine the glory of the calling that we have received with all of its magnificence. Anything short then of making every effort, every effort, that's what verse 3 says, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace Amongst the body of believers in the local church, Paul is saying, is at odds with the worth of the calling that you've received. The worth of that magnificent call that he has made to you. And it serves to diminish his glory. And that's a serious thing. It's a serious thing when we diminish God's glory. So, waving the flag over this whole message... Is the truth that striving for peace in the body of Christ is a quality that Jesus wants his people to undertake, to exercise in the local expression of the body that is the church. And yet we know, we know for a fact that because of our residual sin, because of our own failings, because of our shortcomings, there will be disputes, there will be arguments, there will be discord. And and the word dispute is not my word. It's the word that's in Acts chapter 15. So if you can turn now to Acts chapter 15 and you have a look at verse 2, you'll see that Paul and Barnabas had a sharp dispute, a debate with some people. So what's going on in Acts chapter 15? That's the question we need to arrive at, that's what we need to deal with. What is going on? What is the background? Well, the account concerns two churches. There's a church in Antioch, and there's a church in Jerusalem. The Antioch church is made up predominantly of Gentiles, non-Jewish converts to Christ. And the church in Jerusalem is made up predominantly of Jewish converts to Christ. So you've got Gentiles in one place, Jews in another place. They're all one and the same people because they're all in Christ. Their Gentileness and their Jewishness makes no difference. In Christ they are all one people. They're all the same people. They're all the blood-bought people of Christ. Both churches are true churches. Both churches are local expressions of the body, of the bride of Christ. Both churches are made up of blood-bought believers. The church in Antioch is the church... If you have a look back in Acts chapter 13, that sent Paul and Barnabas on their way, on their missionary journey. That's a significant thing. Paul and Barnabas, just think of what Paul did. How significant his work was. And it was the church in Antioch that sent him on his way with Barnabas to go and do that work. And the church in Jerusalem, if you're thinking, well, okay, that sounds pretty impressive. The church in Antioch, that's an impressive church. Well, the church in Jerusalem's got Peter and James in it. They're apostles. So that's an impressive church as well. These two churches are significant churches in the early 
scene of the local church. However, some people, and I think they're believers, have come down from Jerusalem to Antioch and have started teaching these Gentile believers in Antioch that unless they are willing to be circumcised, according to the law of Moses, then they cannot be considered believers. That's in verse 1. They can't be considered believers. Unless you're willing to be circumcised, you can't be considered a believer. In other words, putting your faith in Christ, that's all very well and good. But unless that's accompanied by circumcision, then you can't be a believer. And the reason that I think that the, the people, the visitors that have come down from Jerusalem to Antioch are believers is because the group that sent them, in verse 5, we find that group, it calls them believers. There's a Pharisee group in Jerusalem that have sent these people down. And they're called believers. That's what it says in verse 5. They're believers. So I don't think we should be thinking Antioch has been infiltrated by a group of people who are unbelievers. They're not. They're believers. So you've got a set of believers here asserting something really serious. This is so serious. Unless you're circumcised like we are, you can't be believers. We're believers. We've been circumcised. But unless you are circumcised, you can't be Believers, In other words, faith in Christ must be accompanied by circumcision. Not only does that have gospel implications, but it has implications for the way that these believers at Antioch would have to live out their Christian lives. Anybody who was circumcised was required to keep the whole law. Which is why, in verse 5, the party of the Pharisees in Jerusalem said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. And Paul spoke exactly the same thing when he wrote to uh, the church in Galatia later on. When he said, again I declare to every man, this is by way of warning, who lets himself be circumcised that he is required to obey the whole law. Galatians chapter 5 and the third verse. Now Paul and Barnabas are really opposed to this idea. These people and the, what the, the teaching that they're bringing to the believers in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas are not happy about this teaching. They're not happy. They can see what the gospel undermining implications are going to be. They can see the destructive implications for the church. And verse 2 tells us that Paul and Barnabas had sharp disputations and discussions with the believers in Jerusalem. And they debated these things with them. So you've got a young church in Antioch and you've got believers on both sides of a serious question. A serious question. Not a trivial one. Not a second rate one. A primary issue. Who are they going to believe? Who will the believers at Antioch follow? Who are you going to listen to? What is the truth in this matter? What is God's will? How should I, as a believer in Antioch, how should I respond to this teaching that says, I need to be circumcised, I'm a Gentile. How should I respond? Listen, believers in Jesus don't want to think things or behave in ways or adopt views that are at odds with their saviour, do they? 
They want to be aligned with him. They want to be in tune with him. They want to think his thoughts. They want to walk in his footsteps. They want to have attitudes that accord with his attitudes. That is what we want to be like as believers. So what will the church do to resolve this issue? What will the church do to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace? Because that is the ultimate question. That is what we have learned from Ephesians chapter 4. Is the ultimate question. How will there be unity in Antioch when these people have come down and have said these things? And I see seven things that they do which will be really good principles for us to adopt as we encounter similar challenges, similar situations in the life of our fledgling church, Riverside Baptist Church. And I want to list them first and then just expand upon them for a few minutes. The first one is the role that the church plays in resolving this issue. The second one is the role that the elders play in re- resolving this issue, issue. The third one is communication is essential. The fourth one is the revelation of God is foundational. The fifth, the gospel is the testbed. The sixth, love is the goal. And the seventh, hard work is indispensable. And there are probably others in here, but these seven at least will serve us if we employ them faithfully. So the first one, the role of the church. What is particularly striking about this whole account, if you read it really carefully, is how prominent the church is in the account. How prominent the collective body of Christ is in bringing about the resolution that is at hand, that we have at the end of the passage which Dwayne brought to us this morning. The decision is taken that in order for there to be a Uh, A binding and decisive word on this matter. Somebody needs to go up to Jerusalem and speak to the apostles and the elders there to get a decision from them. Verse 2. Paul and Barnabas were appointed. And we might ask, appointed by who? Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question, the church sent them on their way. So the church, it seems, chose these men. The church, it seems, gave them their instructions. The church sent them on their way, expecting them to come back to them with the answer from the apostles and elders. It's the church that does that. The church chooses, the church sends, the church instructs, This is the work of the collective body. And when these men arrived in Jerusalem, notice that they're welcomed by the church in Jerusalem, verse 4. Not only that, but the whole assembly in Jerusalem seems to have been gathered together to hear Paul and Barnabas' testimony of their missionary journey, verse 12 says. And after the decision had been reached, it was the church that chose some of their own men to send back to Antioch with a letter Determining what should be the outcome of this debate. That's in verse 22. Then, when these men sent from Jerusalem back to Antioch arrive with the letter, who is it who reads the letter? It's not the elders, it's the church. The church read the letter. Verse 31. And they receive the message as encouraging and it gladdens their hearts. And then finally, it was the church in Antioch Antioch, who actually said to the men who had come down from Jerusalem with the letter, now you go back to Jerusalem, verse 33, with our blessing. So the church has a really significant role. 
And given how significant we're going to see the role of the elders in a minute in functioning, it would be an overstatement to say that the church is the decisive player in the resolution of the debate in Antioch. I don't think that's the case, but the church plays a significant and vital role in the resolution process. They're the one who have the responsibility as a collective body to say, we are going to do something about this. We are going to send, we are going to request, we are going to receive. The role that we see the church functioning in here is a role that is borne out in the rest of the New Testament. And one which applies to the general operation of the whole church. Not just in resolution matters, but in all matters. The members of the local church have a function to operate as a body. Remember in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we've got that picture of the church there, the local body. And I think it is the local body, because when you get the picture of the church in Ephesians, and you get the picture of the church in Colossians, the head of the body there is Christ. But in 1 Corinthians 12, it's not, the head is not Christ. The head is just a member, like the feet are a member, or the arms are a member. So there's a slightly different picture of the church going on in 1 Corinthians 12. And I think it's the picture of the local body. But 1 Corinthians 12 emphasises the members of the body working in unison together to a, a determined end, to a determined goal. And if you want to move your body in that direction over there, if one leg goes in that direction and the other leg goes in that direction, the body will not move where you want it to move. Both legs must move in the same direction. The body of Christ must be unified so it can move in the same direction. They must work together to move forward. And the members in both Antioch and in Jerusalem have put in place ways, put in place ways of bringing a diverse set of personalities, people with all kinds of different ideas, different backgrounds, different characters. They found a way of bringing those people together as a whole and making them move in a direction as a whole. And because they were able to do that, they were able to arrive at a resolution to this problem, ultimately. The second thing is the role of elders. And we're not told about the elders in Antioch. There's no mention of the elders in Antioch. We get lots of references in the passage to uh, elders in Jerusalem, but not elders in Antioch. And I think it's likely that Paul and Barnabas were actually acting as the elders in Antioch at this time. And we know that Paul and Barnabas were counted apostles by this point, because Acts chapter 14 and the 14th verse says that. And we know that Paul and Barnabas have been appointing elders in all of the churches which they had established uh, on their missionary journey. And that's in Acts chapter 14 and the 23rd verse. So they're acting, I think, as elders in Antioch at this point. But regardless of what the situation is with regard to elders in Antioch, the role of elders in re- resolving this issue is really key. It's really fundamental. And it should not go unnoticed. According to Titus, the elders of the church must hold firmly to the trustworthy message. They must encourage others in sound doctrine. And they must be able to refute error. And according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, elders must be able to teach and they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. And Acts chapter 20 and 28th verse makes it really clear that this gifting, this gifting of being able to handle the truth, of being able to handle the word of God in that way that we've just heard in 1 Timothy and Titus, 
Acts chapter 20 and 28 verse makes it really clear that the Holy Spirit is the one who makes a person an overseer. He's the one who equips a person to be able to keep watch over the flock. So there's a uniqueness about the elders' ability to be able to handle the word of God. There's a uniqueness about their role and their function. There's no requirement for a deacon anywhere in the Bible to be capable of this kind of teaching example. That doesn't mean that in the life of the church there won't be others who can teach. There must be. Think about Sunday school. Is it not important that the people who teach children in Sunday school can teach? Yes. Fundamental, isn't it? Otherwise they could be hearing anything. They've got to be able to handle the word of God rightly, for sure. But it's not in the same way as the elders. The elders are equipped especially for looking after the flock. They're equipped especially for discerning error and for rooting it out and for protecting the flock that they have oversight of. So what we find in Acts is that when Paul and Barnabas arrive in Jerusalem, they're met and welcomed by the church, first of all, true, but the consideration of the question at hand is not taken by the church. It's taken by the elders, verse 6. And the decision that is arrived at and the letter that conveys that decision is not written by the church, it's written by the elders. In verses 7 to 11, Peter contributes, and he's an elder. In verse 12, Paul and Barnabas contribute to the discussion. In verses 13 to 21, James contributes to the discussion. All are in agreement, all are saying the same thing, all are elders. And crucially, the church abides by their decision. It hears their decision and it abides by it. God has appointed them to rightly handle the word of truth. And we shouldn't conclude from that that elders always make the right decisions or that elders have all of the answers or that elders can't be in error because 1 Timothy 5 and the 19th and 20th verses were put paid to that idea. But it does mean that the role of the elders is distinct from the rest of the church at large and vital, vital to the functioning of the body. Based on, on the wording of the letter in verses 24 through to 29, that letter was written by the elders and the apostles in Jerusalem to those in Antioch. It looks like the elders are the ones writing to the church in Antioch. It says, we have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you. So the elders assume the role of authority in the church. And the people who had gone down to Antioch should not have done what they had done without permission from the elders in Jerusalem. That allows the elders to write to the believers in Antioch and say, whatever these people who went out from us said to you, it didn't come from us. It wasn't with, it, with our authorization. It wasn't with our stamp of approval upon it. The elders of the church did not send these men down to you. And certainly what they are saying is not our teaching. Therefore, the elders are responsible for arriving at and communicating the decision with careful intention and attention to the truth of God's word and with protection for the flock paramount in their minds at all times. What's really encouraging here, I find, is that the elders in Jerusalem, who you might think, well, they would favour the Jerusalem bunch over the Antioch bunch because they're their own people. It's like, it's like Paul and I favouring 
you guys over somebody at another church. But they don't, do they? They actually deliver a decision which flies in the face of the things that those in Jerusalem have been saying and favours what Paul and Barnabas have been saying in Antioch. Thirdly, the place that communication plays. This week has taught me in a real way how vital communication is. What I'm like as a person is that when I find a situation difficult to deal with, I go quiet. I shrink into myself. I don't say anything. I keep things on the lowdown. And that keeps everybody else guessing. That keeps my wife guessing this week. And that's not right. It's wrong. Communication is paramount. She said to me this week, why didn't you just say that to me? You could have, for two days you've been all quiet, you could have just said something. If we would only communicate better. So many of the church's problems, so many of our individual problems could be avoided just with honest, brave communication. Because people's minds fill in the blanks when communications go down. This account is laden with good examples of communication. Look at Paul and Barnabas communicating their disagreement with the people who come from Jerusalem. Not an easy communication, but one that they did not shy away from. Paul and Barnabas spreading the good news about how Gentiles have come to faith in Christ and strengthening the other believers in verse 3. Paul and Barnabas reporting the matter in question to the church in Jerusalem, verse 4. The Pharisees presenting their position in verse 5. The council of apostles and elders in verse 6 and how they interact with one another. How Peter communicated his experience in the case of Cornelius, a Gentile. How Paul and Barnabas conveyed their witness of the events of their missionary journey in verse 12. How James communicates his insight into the prophecy of Amos in verses 15 to 18. And then how he communicates his judgment in the matter in verses 19 to 21. And of course the letter communication as well between Jerusalem and Antioch. In all these communications, words, if you notice, are not overly multiplied. They're quite limited really. And the tone in each is considered and kindly. And even where you think it sounds like it's going to be sharper. In fact, that's the word that's used. Paul and Barnabas disputed with them sharply in verse 2. No one's too proud to defer to another. You don't get the impression that any party is being obnoxious. That any party is being unkind to the other. The question is clearly an important question. One that needs robust consideration, but people are willing to esteem each other in the Lord when they're doing it. They're not going to take out their swords and pierce one another with many griefs. They're going to communicate their position and the reasons for their position. And they're going to do it with kindness and they're going to do it with clarity. And surely that's what we need to be like. Fourthly, if elders were the were operating in that really decisive role we considered earlier, then the revelation of God is the decisive authority in deciding this matter. It's so crucial. If the church resorts to just opinions, you have your opinion, you have your opinion, I have my opinion, in deciding any matters of contention, then there's no hope of unity. 
There has to be the revelation of God as the only abiding, unerring and decisive source of resolution on any matter of dispute. That is the only way that you will ever have unity in the life of the church. There must be an authority which is greater than your authority or yours or mine or anybody else's. And it is the word of God. The revelation of God is the only abiding authority. In the case of Peter's contribution, his is a revelation by virtue of what he received in the vision. For Paul and Barnabas, it was witnessing the work of the Holy Spirit in the mission field. For James, it's the Holy Spirit-inspired revelation of the meaning of Amos 9 in its gospel fulfillment. Insofar as the scriptures are faithfully interpreted... In light of the rest of Scripture, and I say faithfully interpreted because you can make the Bible mean whatever you want it to mean. All you have to do is take a text and take it out of context, and you say it means this, with no attention to the context or no attention to the rest of the Bible, you make it mean whatever you want it to mean. That's no good. Scripture has to be faithfully interpreted in light of the rest of Scripture, in light of the context in which the text is found, not making it to mean whatever we want it to mean, but letting it mean what it actually means. Then we have all the revelation and all the interpretive means contained for us in one book, which will be the decisive arbiter in all matters of doctrine and practice for our lives, for this church. Fifthly, the preeminence of the gospel. Many, if not all, disputes could be solved by asking a really simple question. Where does the gospel find its greatest expression? So in this situation, to ask the question, is the gospel characterised by works or by grace? That's a simple question, isn't it? Is the gospel characterised by works or by grace? The answer is surely grace. So if we listen to these teachings telling us we need to keep the law of Moses, we need to be circumcised in order to be saved, then where will grace be? Redundant. Put to one side. And if grace is demoted, then works are promoted. Then, does that sound like the gospel? It doesn't sound like the gospel anymore. We'll probably be able to figure out the answer relatively simply if we put it on the testbed of the gospel. Peter's argument is absolutely grounded in the gospel. The gospel has come to the Gentiles, verse 7, and they have believed. Then he says in verse 8, they received the Holy Spirit. Then he says in verse 9, the Gentiles, Gentiles were purified by faith. Then he says in verse 11, we Jews were saved by grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus, not by Moses, And the Gentiles are being saved in exactly the same way. There's no difference. Therefore, the gospel proves to be the ultimate testbed for any argument. For any argument that looks like it's at odds with the gospel is probably not a right argument. It's probably not a true argument. Sixthly, love each other. Love is the goal, isn't it, here? Listen to James' judgment on the matter in verses 19 to 21. It's got two-pronged emphasis. The first is, let's not make it hard for the Gentiles here. If we get them to be circumcised and then have to keep the law, that's going to make it really hard for the Gentiles. They're not Jews. So let's not make it hard for the Gentiles, verse 19. And secondly, let's encourage the Gentiles to do a few things that would ensure that Jewish believers whose faith might be weak, are not stumbled in sin, into sinning against their own consciences 
I think that's what verse 20 is alluding to. There were Jewish believers whose consciences wouldn't allow them to eat food that had been sacrificed to idols. There were Jewish believers whose consciences wouldn't allow them to eat food where the animal had been strangled. There were Jewish believers who wouldn't allow... Their conscience wouldn't allow them to eat food where the blood was still in it. None of those things count for anything. They're not... They don't make a person more righteous or less righteous. But because of their Jewish background, those things were so ingrained in them that they still had problems with them from a conscience point of view. And James is saying that whilst none of these things actually present a problem to the Gentiles, the Gentiles should take care of their brothers and sisters who are from Jewish backgrounds who might be tempted to do the same thing as they are doing as Gentiles and so sin against their consciences and that would be sin for them. If you sin against your conscience, if you do something which in your conscience you've already said to yourself, this would be sin to do, then you're sinning. You're not sinning because the thing is right or wrong to do. You're sinning because in your own mind, in your own conscience, you've already said, that's a sin. For me, that is a sin to do. And therefore, he's encouraging the Gentiles to take care of their Jewish brothers and care for them. Care for them enough not to encourage them to sin against their consciences. James wants the Jewish believers to love the Gentile believers as well. Enough to not place unnecessary burdens on them. And this is how the church loves. It cares in both ways, doesn't it? It receives care and it delivers care. It receives love and it delivers love. You can see how unity would be built up if that were the case. That's what we need to be like. And finally, seventh, the matter was resolved with hard work. You can't get away from hard work in this passage, can you? Resolutions don't come about by passivity or an unwillingness to engage. They come about by hard work. They come about by devotion. They come about by commitment to resolving the issue. Just think of the time and the travelling to resolve this issue in Antioch. At least four people travelled from Antioch. We know that Paul and Barnabas went and some others. That's at least four. Probably more than four. Travelled from Antioch to Jerusalem. The journey presumably took some time. And the conference and the resolution took some time as well. There's hours there. There's days there, I would suggest. The, the, at least then, four from Antioch plus two from Jerusalem go back down. We know that two from Jerusalem went down. And whoever came up from Antioch went back to Antioch, which meant more travelling. How did these people earn a living? How were they gone for this period of time? Who looked after them? Who fed them? Well, presumably, the church did that. The church took the cost upon itself to get the resolution to the problem by hard work. The two from Jerusalem stayed, it says in verse 33, for quite a while, presumably, until eventually they were sent back. So who looked after them? Again, the church must have looked after them. The church must have fed them. People in the church must have invited them into their homes and said, come and eat with us. Come and share our food at cost to ourselves. So the whole thing sounds like a costly affair. It sounds like hard work. It sounds like it might have been the kind of issue that could have caused some people to snigger in the background and say, this is a waste of time. Don't waste our energies on this kind of thing. Surely there's an easier way. Just forget about it. Let's just circumnavigate the issue. 
But the fact is that maintaining the unity in, of the Spirit through the bond of peace is going to be hard work because Ephesians chapter 4 and the third verse where we started out says, make every effort. Make every effort. Do we want there to be unity in the body? Make every effort then to uphold the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Resolution of unity destroying disagreements is going to take gutsy, hard work. But it is what we are called to do as a church. Because peaceful unity complements the unparalleled worthiness of the call that we've received. That, That call that we have received is so magnificent that we can't allow any disagreements to undermine the unity that should be present in the life of our church. And therefore we need to employ all of these things, these are all means to arrive back at that unity of the Spirit, which is where we want to be as a church. I'm I'm prayerful this morning that this message will serve to show us how important the body is, the local church, how significant it is, how important those roles are, the role of the church, the role of the elders, how important it is to be willing to communicate well, to be willing to work hard at the problems, to not throw in the towel, to keep going. And hopefully next time, we'll be able to have a look in some more detail at what it is to be a member of the local body. May God bless his word to us. Amen.